All right, it's time for a TMT. And those of you who've been here for a while, you know that's a two-minute teaching, training. Sometimes we do missions reports. And today's a special mission report, um, and actually a special mission plug for a mission that Life Church is on starting this fall. Charity mentioned that we have a preschool coming this fall. So I've asked my good friend Barry Termat to come and share. Um, he works with Compassion Child Care. And out of Compassion Child Care has been born a couple of preschools in the city. And really the goal, the aim is to get these kids connected to a church body. So they're planting these preschools in churches. We're the second one in the city. And I'm, for one, I'm just so thrilled that there's going to be kids in this building, little kids, boys and girls, every day hearing the good news about Jesus. Not just Sunday morning, but every single day. Yes, absolutely. So, like, we're seeing, like, little uh, toy trucks and little um, workstations come in. There's, like, this cool Black & Decker workstation back in that back room. And I'm just like, man, bring in all the stuff you want. I will work in that room around all the toys if that's what it takes because these little kids get to hear about Jesus and hopefully even the gospel going forward to their families, people it, right here in our community, in our neighborhood. So, Barry, take it away. Thank you for being here. Absolutely. Well, thank you. Um, I get really nervous when I hear a two-minute time limit. So I'm going to try my best to get this, but I'm a talker. Those of you that know me know I'm a talker. So thanks for, uh, I just want to thank you from Compassion Child Care and Compassion Preschool for hosting. I also want to thank this church. You guys have been giving generously of not only your building, but your dollars as well, the compassion over the years. So I want to thank you, this church for that as well. But I think it's really important that I start with a moment of clarification for all of us because Compassion Preschool in this building exists to help this church with its mission. Life Church does not exist to help compassion with what God's called us to do in this city. And that is such an important clarification because this is yours. I want to say that again. This is yours. Um, I've had the joy and pleasure of spending time in these neighborhoods the last few weeks. And I'm, you know, shaking hands and kissing babies because I'm trying to get the word out about this preschool in here. And I want many of you to join me in doing that. And that's the way this first year starts. We've been doing preschool for, this will be our sixth year at First Evangelical Free Church. Um, and so that's the church that I attend, and we've learned a lot from that, enough to know that this can work in a community, enough to know that this can make a difference in a community, enough to know that people will join your church and join this worship because of Compassion Preschool, but one of the things about it being yours is I need you. So one of the challenges that I find right off the bat normally is when we come and ask for volunteers. Like I heard we got clean up volunteers and we got youth group volunteers. And like you're getting hit up hard, right? But for some of you, this is your thing. But some of you in your mind are thinking, okay, I'm not qualified to help out. Or maybe the small little bit that I can give to Compassion Preschool at Life Church just isn't going to make a difference. And so one of the quick stories I want to tell you is to say no to those things. That is not true. That is the enemy speaking to you because you are qualified based on the preaching and teaching you're hearing every single week. And number two, 
the little bit matters. And so one, one example of that is two weeks ago we had VBS at E-Free and I saw all these little kids around and I recognized them. They were previous graduates of Compassion Preschool at E-Free. They were kids that go there currently right now. It's super exciting to see them in VBS. But there was two kids in general or uh, in particular that I thought, man, how did they get here? Because I knew both of their parents worked the night shift. So I asked little Ezekiel, I'm like, Ezekiel, how are you here today? And he goes, well, so-and-so brought me. And I was just shocked because this woman from my church hadn't helped out for a couple years. But two years ago, she helped ride along in the church van to buckle kids in their seat. Doesn't sound like a very glorious job, right? Shake hands with the parents, take the kid, buckle them in. The parents are giving that child to that to the teacher and to this volunteer, and she buckles him into the seat, right? And it doesn't seem like it's a big deal, only she also showed up when there was a Christmas program at the church, and she showed up at graduation, and she showed up to help make some meals as well, and all of a sudden, she had a relationship with this family. And so every year for VBS, she's been reaching out to the same family, and so two of the boys from the family got to come to VBS because she picked them up, but that parent trusted her to pick them up, and now we have a relationship. Can I hear an amen? It's exciting. It's exciting. So here's my point. The small things actually matter. The small things can make a difference, okay? So this preschool is going to start the day after. I'm going to get you some dates. This is going to start the day after Labor Day. I believe that's September 5. Tuesday, September 5. So put that in your mind. So we got two exciting dates to talk to you about, okay? So Everybody know Abby Kate Hamilton? You know who she is? She's going to be heading this up. So she and I are going to work together. We've learned a lot of things. I'm going to impart that wisdom to her and help this church as well. And so key dates for you to write down or think about. I'm sure we'll get them in an email as well. Thursday, August 17, at 7 o'clock, we've got a volunteer Q&A slash dream night for this church. 7 o'clock Thursday, it's a week from this Thursday, the 17th, okay? So I want as many people who are even considering volunteering, if you've already signed up to, to make some lunches, if you've signed up to ride along, I'm sure you've got questions. What am I supposed to do? How does this look? The other thing is, is we're not going to limit it to the knowledge we've gained in the last five years. We really want to make sure we're learning from you and how you want to do this. This is your preschool, right? So you're going to have ideas that I've never thought of. The dream here. The dream is that you are going to be rubbing shoulders with people in this neighborhood that otherwise would not have walked through these doors. What Compassion Preschool is going to do for this church is have people walk through these doors every single day that would have never considered coming through these doors. And the second they can rub shoulders with great people like you, people with energy, people that care, people that can give hope, I promise you the small things are going to make a difference. I've watched it happen. I've watched it happen. It's going to happen here, okay? So Thursday night, that's a dream night. That's a Q&A night for an hour. And then the big deal, drum roll, big deal. Monday, oh, I love it. Thank you. This guy's good. Monday, August, my church would have never clapped or done the drum roll. So thank you so much for your non-conservatism. Uh, Monday, August 28th, okay? So this is a Monday night, August 28th, 6 to 8. We're going to have a big block party for you guys okay we're going to help you with it but we need you 
So we're going to bring jumpy houses. We've got Compassion Preschool is going to bring out a uh, food truck. And so we're going to register all the kids that night. So they're going to meet their classmates. They're going to meet the teacher, all kinds of things like that. So I need help with registration. I need help with people bouncing on the bouncy houses. So little kids that are back there, they're going to be bouncing around to make it feel good for the neighborhood. You're going to be telling neighbors, hey, this is great, whatever you want to do. Um, but we need your help. That's 6 to 8. Monday, August 28th, that's going to launch into that first day of preschool, okay? So once again, want to say thank you. I know I'm probably on my seven-minute seven mission moment or whatever it is. Thank you for your time, but this is so exciting. I promise you that just with the smiles I'm seeing here, we can do a ton. The small little bit that you're willing to come and just pour into that night of the 17th as we talk about it is going to help us dream and make a difference in your community. God bless you and thank you. Amen. All right, Amy, come on up and read the scripture for us. The scripture today is Exodus 14, 1 through 31. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Haroth between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward, toward the people. And they said, What is this we have done, that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him. He took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out defiantly. The Egyptians pursued them all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and his horsemen and his army and overtook them encamped at the sea by Pi-Haroth in front of Baal-Zephon. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. Lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. 
And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, when I have gotten glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued excuse me, pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. And in the morning watched the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us free, flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea, that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of, of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Thank you, Amy. Amy gets the Long Passage Gold Star Award as well. That's good reading. Hey, I want to start with a little question. Um, what's the one thing that since Adam and Eve all human beings have in common. Ah, Z, Z always gets me on these questions. Last time I, I asked a question and Z technically had me completely in checkmate. Um, but you're right, Z, thank you. Uh, it's also death, right? Death, which is a result from sin, but every human being since Adam and Eve. Now you could argue that today we also have taxes in common. Death and taxes, everybody has to pay taxes. But since Adam and Eve, we've all died. Think about that. Every single human being, with the exception of Enoch and Elijah, the Bible tells us that God took them, that they never died. All human beings have died. Some have even been unlucky enough to die twice. You know, think about Tabitha and Lazarus. Oh, man, you know, you get through it once, and then people raise you back up to die again. They had to die two times. Jairus' daughter, uh, the, the uh, Shunammite that Jack talked about last week. Um, but, of course, because this is a universal curse over all human beings, since the beginning of time, since humans started to die, humans have put a ton of effort 
and still do, billions and billions of dollars every year go into the anti-death project, right? Trying to prolong our lives as long as possible. And of course, through medical advancements and nutrition and things like that, we've made snippets of progress, right? Like people can live longer now than many, many other times throughout history. But even with those things, we still haven't begun to sniff beating death. That is unless, of course, you belong to the people of God. Then you don't just try to beat death, but you're guaranteed to beat death. We're in our series again called Get Out, and we've been talking this, this whole summer, um, really paralleling two narratives of God with his people. The story of God with his people in the Exodus, them coming up out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery, and the story of God with his people, the church, in Acts, and looking at those um, similarities and differences in those two narratives. And the next two weeks, we're going to look at how God's people are a community that has victory over death. And of course, that doesn't mean that we never die. Obviously, we all still die um, for the moment, at least until the resurrection comes. But death no longer has the final say in our lives, right? It's not the last chapter. The power has come out of it. The sting has come out of it, as the Apostle Paul says. So today, I want to talk to you about how to beat death. How to beat death. That's my sermon for today. Now, Our story from the book of Exodus here tells of a time when God's people were facing death, not from one place, from two real places, right? The Egyptians were behind them, and the Red Sea, which was in front of them. So so they had come up out of the land of Egypt. Um, God directed them in a certain path so that they wouldn't encounter war and led them up against the Red Sea. So you might say that they were caught between death and death, between a rock and a really hard place. They had nowhere to go. And yet, by God's power, they beat death on both accounts. So let's look at it. Um, In typical fashion, Pharaoh had changed his mind about Israel once again. You remember after the plague of the firstborn that we looked at, um, his heart had been broken, and he was like, just go. But now, he's in a deadly rage that's fueled by a lust for power again, and also, more than likely, his grief over the loss of his own firstborn son. Right? So this is a really, really angry, power-hungry man coming after them with the, the most powerful army in the world. And Pharaoh should have known better by now. You know, after all, God gave him 10 plagues in Egypt of increasing severity, basically saying to him, look, I'm not going to give up. I'm going to set my people free. I will break your neck if I have to, God's saying. But nobody's accusing this Pharaoh of being a quick learner. He just keeps going and pursuing the Israelites the Israelites are left with two options, fight and die or be captured and returned to slavery. Neither one of them look very good. So what do they do when they're faced with this threat? Well, naturally, they're filled with fear, and they cry out to God and to Moses. And listen to this, verse 11. It says, it's because there, is it because there's no graves in Egypt? You just hear them saying this. You, you, you all have friends like this, right? That, that at the most unhelpful time ask the really sarcastic question. Is it because there's, there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Now, if I'm Moses at this point, I don't appreciate sarcastic questions. You know, 
you're in a tough spot as a leader. You're in a crisis. You've got to make a decision. And I might have just looked at him sideways and been like, yeah, you know what? That, that is what I did. There wasn't enough land to bury you all, so I thought I'd make a two million person grave out here in the wilderness. You know, like Moses is, it's not fun being Moses right at the moment. But God is clearly with Moses and working through him because look what he turns and says to the people. He tells them precisely how they're going to beat death. There's four commands here in this passage that I want to highlight. All of them in these rich couple verses, verses 13 through 15. These probably jumped out to you because they, they do. They just jump off the page. Listen to this. I'll read it again. And Moses said to the people, instead of answering with a, you know, snarky, equally sarcastic comment, he says to the people, Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Then the Lord said to Moses, why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward. And this section just oozes with confidence and power, but there's four commands that we see for the people of Israel on how to beat death, and I think they apply um, really, really well to our lives today. So let's look at them. The first command we see here for the people on how to beat death is to fear not. Fear not, right? Now, I don't know about you, but when I'm really scared of something and somebody comes along and says, oh, don't be afraid of that, is that helpful? I don't think that's usually very helpful. I'm like, well, yeah, obviously I wouldn't choose to be afraid of it, if I could not be afraid of it, I wouldn't be afraid of it, but I am afraid of it. And fear is actually an automatic response, right? It's an automatic response of our nervous system that says, hey, there's a threat present, so you should be afraid. It's actually something God built in us to help us survive. So you see a tiger and you're not like, hey, let's go pet that thing. You, you get afraid so that you'll remove yourself from the threat. Well, this should produce fear in them. There's a giant, well-trained army that never misses right behind them with an angry, awful, um, narcissistic leader at its helm. Like, this is a bad situation, and they should be afraid of this thing. But what I appreciate about God is that he never tells his people, fear not, or don't be afraid, without giving them good logic and reason to not be afraid. You understand that? And that makes all the difference in the world here. This circumstance is no exception. Moses says, fear not. Why? Because the Lord will fight for you. Oh, well, now that's a game changer. The Lord will fight for you. That's a reason not to fear. It's kind of like if you're a kid, and maybe some of you face this, you know, maybe third, fourth grade, elementary school. They're bullies, right? And um, at some point in time, if you're a kid and this kid keeps picking on you, you have a choice to like stand up to them or just to keep putting up with it. Just keep putting up with all the ridicule and the demands and the being pushed around. And say you're a kid and you say, look, I'm, I'm, I'm doing it. I'm going to stand up to him. And you say to this bully, like, let's handle this on the playground tomorrow morning before school. And you get up your nerve to say that. And then you go home and you're just petrified, right? Like, what, am I, what have I done? Tomorrow morning I got to face the biggest kid in the class and he's just going to pummel me. But let's say you happen to talk to your big brother, who's a senior linebacker on the football team. And he says, hey, don't worry about that. I'll come with you. I'll talk to this kid. If he wants to fight, he can fight me. Now, that don't worry about it is going to come across a lot better than if maybe your younger sister says, oh, don't worry about that. It's like, yeah, easy for you to say. I'm the one that's got to face the bully. And this is exactly what God's doing here. He's saying, 
hey, fear not. Don't worry. Don't be afraid. I'm going to fight for you. This puny little army is nothing for me. And God's constantly doing this when he tells his people, don't be afraid. As a matter of fact, do not fear or fear not or don't be afraid. Versions of that, that's one of the most repeated commands throughout all of Scripture. God's saying it over and over and over again. And whenever he says it, he's always got a good reason for saying it. He says, fear not, for I'm with you. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. Fear not, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Fear not, are you not worth more than many sparrows? Remember Jesus saying that? He's always got a good reason for it, right? He's always, he's always got logic behind it, and this is the first step in beating death. In the face of death itself, we're commanded, fear not, for God's going to fight for you. That's the first thing. But second, the Lord through Moses tells the people to stand firm. Stand firm. And the other way this Hebrew verb is translated is stand still. And the big idea here is that we wait on the Lord. So we're not frantically running around trying to save ourselves, um, trying to bring about our own rescue. We stand still and wait on the Lord. And for people like me, this is perhaps the hardest thing we have to do when it comes to beating death is just wait on the Lord. We have to acknowledge that we're not powerful enough to save ourselves. We can't even come close. We have to completely lean on God to do it. And again, there's tons of scriptures that come to our minds here, right? You know, be still and know that I am God. Um, they that wait on the Lord will renew their strength. It's not they that go out and just get her done. You know, it's they that wait on the Lord will renew their strength. So if we're honest, in our times of greatest stress, and especially when we're really threatened like the Israelites are here, we behave a lot like the Israelites. Sometimes it's fun to kind of look down our noses on them and be like, those people of Israel, such amateurs. But then we're running around with our hair on fire at the littlest things. You know, here they're actually, their lives, their very lives are threatened. We get panicked. We get hysterical, sarcastic, and accusatory. We come back to God with like, is this what you're doing, God, really? We ask the same kind of unhelpful questions take matters into our own hands, and at least try to contribute to our own rescue. But Moses says here, nope, just stand there. Just wait. Be still. See, friends, when it comes to beating death for Christians, it's actually a lot, it's, it's actually very much a passive process. There is very, very little that you have to do. There's very little that you can do. It's very, very passive. It's watch, wait on the Lord, see what he's doing, which brings us to the next point. See the salvation of the Lord. Again, a passive thing. You have only to be silent. Moses is saying, like, sit down and shut up. That's all you have to do. Wait for the Lord. Witness what he's about to do. He's going to fight for you. You don't have to do anything. You couldn't do anything. So the Lord says to the people through Moses, fear not. He says, stand still. And then he says, see the salvation of the Lord. You have only to be silent. That's it. Just wait and see. Just watch the show. Watch the fight. God's going to fight for you. All you have to do is not panic. Make my life harder, Moses is saying. Just don't panic. And again, this message preaches a lot easier than it lives, right? When you're under the gun, when you're really in crisis, it's very hard to do all those things. It's very hard to fear not. It's very hard to, to simply be still and wait. It's very, very hard not to panic. And God gets that about us, too. He knows how weak we are. 
but that doesn't change the command here. And so look, he says, see the salvation of the Lord. And what a spectacle this was to see. I mean, how many of you would just pay to have been on the other side of the Red Sea to watch this show? Like, this would have been amazing. The Lord is moving between the Israelite people and the Egyptians. He, he puts up a blockade, first tactic of war. He puts up this giant blockade with the pillar of cloud. And then he's whipping up the wind so that it parts the Red Sea. And then once the chariots get in there, he's gumming up the wheels with mud. And the, the, the wheels start to fall off. Throws them into a panic with the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. And then the, the walls of water crashing in on them. I mean, these walls of water had to be hundreds of feet high. It would have been incredible to see the salvation of the Lord. And that's what salvation means, right? It means saving, to see the saving of the people of Israel. And when it comes to our salvation from death, we are witnesses to it, but we're not contributors to it. That's what it is. We get to watch. We get to see. We get to behold it. We don't contribute anything to it. We just get to witness what God's doing. Testify to what God's doing. Which brings us to the final point. And finally, there's something for you doers. You know, I'm a doer. I like to be active. If there's something that I can do, I want to be involved in doing it. And, of course, you're tired of sitting around waiting and watching and being still. All that stuff kind of grates against you. You want to be in part of the action. Well, here it is. The final command of God to the people in order for them to beat death is this. Tell the people to go forward. Tell the people to go forward, forward meeting towards the Red Sea. Finally, as God's about to make a way through the Red Sea for the people, he tells them to move forward towards it. And note this, he hasn't divided the Red Sea yet before he gives this command. He didn't make this giant pathway and then they go, oh, I see, move forward towards the path. No, he's like, go towards the sea. Just tell them to move forward, which is a huge faith act. And this is the one thing that we have to do in order to beat death. We have to move forward in faith. That's what we have to do. We have to move forward in faith. God will not say yes for you. He requires faith, which is the same as trust in him. He's done all the work to beat death for us, but our salvation is activated by our faith, by our trust in him. The people of Israel had to move forward towards the sea, which looked terribly threatening, right? And imagine once he did whip up the wind and created a path through it, it still looked incredibly ominous. You know, walls of water hundreds of feet high that could come crashing down at any moment. It's a huge faith act for them to step into the seabed and cross the sea. It very easily could have been, you know, the end of them. It's like the trust fall times one million, Right? Like, you have to trust that God's going to hold up those walls of water or you're toast. You're going to be crushed by them. God had made a way through death, but they had to move forward through it by faith. And we should note how much God loves to operate on the faith or trust of his people. Like, this is a huge theme throughout Scripture that he's always setting up these circumstances for them to put their faith or their trust in him. It's become a major theme for his people as he rescues them from death. And the people of Israel actually have a, a pretty lengthy history of God rescuing them from watery deaths and their faith involved with that. I mean, just think about it with me for a minute. Um, back in the ancient, uh, ancient times, water, and especially the sea, represented God's judgment and death. And so, remember Noah... And the great ark, God sent the flood of his judgment over the entire earth. But 
God told Noah, I want you to build a giant boat in an ark. And by faith, Noah obeyed and spent a hundred years in a desert building a giant boat. You talk about getting some weird looks from your neighbors. What are you doing, Noah? I'm building a, a giant boat. For what? It's nothing but sand around. You know what I mean? Like for a hundred years, he labored in faith. And then God rescued them, him and his family, through the waters of death in the ark. Think about baby Noah or baby Moses in his tiny little ark on the Nile River to escape the wicked plan of the Pharaoh to kill all the baby boys. His mom, by faith, made a little boat, put Moses in it to save him from death. And then what do you know? Pharaoh's own daughter comes down to the river, finds him, adopts him into her family, into the palace. And again, the Lord delivers him up out of the waters of death to eventually become a deliverer for the people of Israel. Um, think about Jonah. And of course, Jonah is being disobedient and, of course, faces the sea of God's judgment. And the sea is just raging. And he's like, guys, this is my fault. I already know it. Throw me overboard and this whole thing will quit. And they do. And that happens. Instantly, the storm stops. But God also sends a great fish through the waters of death to swallow Jonah and spit him out onto dry land. He rescues him out of the waters of death. And, of course, we have this instant here where God rescues the whole nation of Israel through the waters of death, brings them out of the waters of death onto, out onto the land on the other side of the sea. And then later on, in just a few more chapters, we're going to see them at the, at the crossing of the Jordan River as they're coming into the promised land. It's something very, very similar, right? The, the, the Jordan River is at flood stage, and it's just like, you know, you see the big Sioux in the spring, on a normal spring, and it's at flood stage. You're not getting a couple million people across that safely. It's going to be a disaster, right? The water's rushing, and God says, tell the high priest to carry the Ark of the Covenant, and once the soles of their feet touch the Jordan River, then it'll, then it'll stop. Then the waters will pile up. But not before then. It wasn't 100 yards before you get to the river, then I'll pile it up and make a way. You have to step out by faith. You have to step into the water. And that's what's going on here. That's what's required. The one job that God's people have in beating death is to trust God and to move forward. That's what faith is. And here we see the Israelites do it. They move forward into the Red Sea. They come out safely on the other side where they can watch and see as the Lord fights for them. And I mean, just imagine this. You know, the Lord is, is throwing this powerful military into absolute chaos. And all of a sudden, the ground that was dry becomes muddy. The chariots can't move forward. And then that incredible scene where the water just crashes in over Pharaoh's entire army. I mean, annihilating a world power in minutes. That's what they got to see. Astonishing. Astonishing because they move forward by faith. The words of Moses to the people couldn't have been truer in verse 13. The Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. Stunning, stunning words. And of course, that victory that God gives the people over death leads them into jubilant song. As we read in the intro today, uh, you know, Exodus 15 is just one big song of praise. The Israelites to Yahweh because they beat death not once, but twice. From the Egyptians and from the Red Sea. And this story becomes a massive moment in the memory and the history of God's people. They're constantly talking about it. Constantly talking about how God had brought them up out of Egypt, had brought them through death, through the Red Sea, and how he had destroyed Pharaoh's army behind them. 
One commentator said, there's a sense in which the crossing of the Red Sea is to Jews what Easter is to Christians. Like this was their resurrection moment. When it looked like there was nothing but death there for them, God brought them to life. And I would say this, this moment um, could very well be that for the Jews, but it also points us forward to Easter, right? See, because many years later, this entire scene would play out in a much different way on a hill just outside of Jerusalem called Calvary. Once again, there was a sea of God's judgment and wrath, and it was split in two, allowing all of God's people including you and I, to pass through it on dry ground. But as we look closer at this scene at Calvary, we realize that the wall of God's judgment and wrath, the wall of the sea is held up not by the wind, but by our Lord Jesus himself as he's straining under the weight of it, sweating drops of blood. And of course, we all know, these walls of water did not come crashing down on the Egyptians this time, but on God himself. The walls came down on Jesus as he was on the cross. See, friends, he was drowned in God's judgment and death so that we could escape it. The waters of death crashed over him so that we could pass through them safely. But, of course, that wasn't the end of the story like it was for the Egyptians. Three days later, Jesus was raised from the dead to conquer Satan, sin, and death for us forever. So it wasn't like he just took our judgment and death. He conquered it forever so that we now are a community that has victory over death. I find it interesting that when we fast forward and read the end of the Bible, Revelation 21, we see this beautiful picture of God's new people all together. Listen to this. It says this in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. Have you ever wondered that? Why the sea? We tend to think pretty positively about the sea. At least I do. Why no more sea? Because the sea represented judgment and death. And Jesus took all that forever. He did away with it forever. And this, brothers and sisters, this is how we beat death. It's only through Jesus that we have any hope of it. In Jesus, God says to you and I, fear not. Stand firm, see the salvation of the Lord, and move into it by faith. That's what he's saying to you and I today. And if you're here today and you're not a believer, you're not a Christian, you've never said yes to that moment of faith to follow Jesus, we would love to pray with you. We'd love to invite you to that life of discipleship following him. There's going to be people up here in a moment to pray with you. But for the rest of us as a community um, of believers who are here, I'd like to just reflect for a couple moments on what it means for us to be a community who has victory over death. What does that mean for us? How does that change us? Like, how does that change your stress levels? Christians have been known for 2,000 years to risk incredible things because of this very fact that they're a community that has victory over even death itself. So they can say, like Jim Elliott, he is no fool to give what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. We can give our very lives and almost do it flippantly because we have victory over death. Jesus beat death. So what, what can you risk? Your money's no big deal. Your, your reputation's no big deal. Even your own life. Jesus is going to raise you in the end anyway. Can you risk? How does this change your worry, your stress, your ability to risk, knowing that you're, a, you're part of the community that has victory even over death?
how does this change your outlook on the future? And knowing that death is not the end at all, uh, but that there is an eternity awaiting us on a, in a new heavens and a new earth, how does that change your outlook on the future? I, I find myself frustrated with myself that often I find myself planning for the end of my life years. We're so American trained to think about retirement and those kinds of things. And I find a lot of other Christians are wired that way too. We think about 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now. We get locked in on that vision for our lives, but that's really, really short-sighted, you understand. If we're a community that has victory over death, you need to be thinking about investing for two trillion years. That's what you need to be focused on. Uh, I was talking with one of my good friends who's um, a devout Christian, and he had a job interview this past week, and it was with a couple of my other friends who are also Christians, and um, actually just one of my friends, and then there was a couple other Christian guys around the table. And one of them was even a former pastor, worked in a church. And he said the job pitch was basically this, like, yeah, I was in ministry, and I wasn't making very much money, and I came to do this job, and now I got a new car, I got a new house, my family's got everything they want, and if you do this job, you could literally make a million dollars a year. And he's like, Dave, that was, that was the whole pitch. And he's like, I'm sure I did awful in the interview, because I was like, that's it? <laughs> and I was like, good job, man. You should fail that interview. There's nothing in that. If that's it, if it's, it's just the bottom line, then what else is there? You're still going to die. Don't you know you're still going to die? 20, 30, 40, maybe today, years? You're still going to die. It's still coming for you. You still have to face it like everybody else. So don't think about the future like everybody else does. Take jobs that really mean something. Don't just take jobs because they make you rich. That's that's garbage. I mean, certainly God can use riches in, am in amazing ways. But we do it, we operate differently because we're a community that has victory over death. How does this change your joy and your praise? Finally, how does this change your joy and your praise? You know, this beating of death that God gives to the Israelites, just, it just erupts in joy and praise in chapter 15, like we read at the beginning of the service. And I'm wondering, like, are we allowing that to happen in us? Or maybe it's because we just don't believe it's true. But like if you really feel like you beat death, I've had a couple occasions in my life where I felt like I, God kind of spared me from death there. And it just leads you to joy. It leads you to jubilance. And if you're a community that says, we never have to worry about death again, what does that do in your community? What does that do for your praise of him? What does that do for your joy? My prayer is that we would become a community that erupts with praise and joy because our Savior has beat death. I want to end with this quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I've been reading his letters and papers from prison, which are fantastic. He's been in prison about two years at the point where he says this to his dear friend, Eberhard Bethke. They're talking about death as many of their friends have died, World War II. Um, he's in prison, so he knows he could be executed. And he says this to Eberhard. He says, the hour of our death is foreordained, and we have to be prepared for it. But he knows 10,000 ways to save us from death's power. Jesus has beat death. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you that you're the God that has beat death, and that we're the community around you that because of Jesus, we no longer have to fear death that the sting is out of it, that you plan to return and to destroy death once and for all, to raise the dead, and that we're going to live with you forever and ever in eternity. Help us to believe that and grab a hold of that by faith today. We love you. 
We praise you. We rejoice in you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.